0: If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. You may not remember, but when we were preaching through the book of 1 Peter, we were reading through Genesis, and I'll give you one guess what verse we left off at. That's right, verse 22. So we're going to pick up at verse 23 of chapter 19. Our Old Testament reading will be from Genesis 19, verses 23 through 29, as we resume our time in the book of Genesis, as we turn in our sermon series to the Gospel of Matthew. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. you can turn in the new testament to the gospel of matthew there's a a strong tradition of this particular canonical order of matthew mark luke and john it is probably the dominant canonical order that we find in the most ancient manuscripts that we have. It's not universally true. There are some that have a slightly different order, but this is, for the most part, the dominant order that you find. When you open the New Testament, it is Matthew who greets you. And in many ways, Matthew has held a certain pride of place in the church's history. Matthew is perhaps the um, most loved of the four Gospels, And it's not hard to see why. Some of the most beloved portions of Jesus' teaching are found only in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is only from Matthew. The Great Commission is only in Matthew. Matthew is perhaps the most attended to of the four Gospels. And so the pride of place, is not unfitting. Mm. And so we enter into a season, a long season of sermons in the Gospel of Matthew. So I'll invite you to lend your attention. This is the very Word of God. Mm. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amidadab, and Amidadab the father of Nashon, And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abia, and Abia, the father of Asaph and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Chechaniah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May He add His blessing to it. I invite you to join me in prayer. Father, how precious your word is, how rich it is in wisdom and beauty, how heavenly its doctrine, how beautiful that you have preserved it for us. We pray, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ would even now be pleased to teach us attend this word with blessing that we might see and understand that we might grow in wisdom and faith as Christ is exalted and his blessings are confirmed unto us be pleased Lord to do these things even now for Christ's sake amen I've had to give a few introductions in my short career conferences lectures and the like the speakers I've introduced, not that impressive on the whole. No offense to any of the speakers I've introduced, if you're listening. <laughs> if I'm introducing you, you're underwhelming. <laughs> but to introduce a speaker, you usually give their credentials. They went to this or that school or these schools. <laughs> they have this many degrees. They've written this many books. You can tell the types of introductions I've given <laughs> likely you'll plug their latest book as that which cannot be missed just like all the other books that have been written you'll perhaps try to convince the audience why this speaker is worth attending to listening to and ideally as an audience you'll learn something from the introduction and that something will be enough about the person to ensure That indeed, you will attend to what this person has to say. How would you introduce someone whom you know to be important for every single person who will ever live? Important is actually an understatement. How would you introduce the most important person who has ever lived? Actually, that's a bit of an understatement. How would you introduce the most important thing that has ever been? That was the best I could do. (laughs) That's Matthew's task with this introduction. And quite frankly, I think he accomplishes it admirably. Although he does so rather subtly. For he tells us that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, born of Mary, Jesus, adopted son of Joseph the carpenter, is the Christ of God. He's the promised Messiah. There's really no grander title. There's no grander name that you could give to anyone. The Christ of God. In God's providence we just finished the book of Micah do you remember those promises that God made to his people through Micah about a mountain kingdom that was going to tower above all others about people streaming to the king who was over this mountain kingdom and he was providing that which no other kingdom could provide not just life and fullness But peace and prosperity, unbroken, age upon age, the very thing for which the human heart has longed since time immemorial. Matthew says, this is that king. This this, this is him. Those promises are to be found in him. Allow me to introduce the Christ of God, born of Mary, adopted son of Joseph. Allow me to press upon your hearts the excellencies and the faithfulness of our God in sending forth the promised Messiah. That's what Matthew sets before us here. And that's what he's going to go on in his gospel To press upon our hearts that indeed Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God. The hope of every longing heart. So let's mark this morning two things. First, the faithfulness of God. And second, the excellencies of his Christ. Mark first the faithfulness of God. Matthew opens the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, that there should be a New Testament at all is already evidence of God's great faithfulness. (laughs) This is one of Matthew's favorite themes. Jesus as the fulfillment of God's great promises. God's faithfulness on display in sending forth Jesus. Now, the final Old Testament prophets had spoken hundreds of years earlier. This time between the Testaments. And it was a dark time. It was not a good time. Israel is essentially reduced to slavery once more. First to the Greeks, then to the Romans. They have a certain amount of autonomy, but by no means are they a kingdom. Notice how you can hear that implied in Matthew's genealogy. He very much implies that Israel is still in exile at the time of Jesus. In verse 12, he doesn't say after the return from exile. He simply says after the deportation, implying that the state of things is still that of exile. Israel remains in the wilderness, as it were. It's not insignificant that John the Baptist appears preaching where? In the wilderness. It's not insignificant that Jesus is tempted three times where? In the wilderness. Israel is in a wilderness state, but it's not a literal desert. It's it's more of a, a, a social, moral, theological desert. There's an imposter king on the throne, not an heir of David. The priesthood itself has been bought and sold for hundreds of years in Israel, an abomination The fact that demon possession is rampant throughout Israel tells us plainly what the state of things is in Israel. It is a dark wilderness. Or, to change the image, they are tohu vavohu. Welter and waste. Darkness and void. The book of the Genesis jesus christ it says genealogy the word is genesis it's the same word you'd find if you open in the front of your greek old testament which i trust you've brought fine just open in the front of your english old testament it's the same word it's the transliterated word genesis the book of the genesis of jesus christ the spirit hovering over the face of the waters the spirit hovering over the womb of mary the Spirit, like a bird, descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The faithfulness and the excellencies of God about to break forth once more. And God's act towards the earth in Jesus Christ is even more astonishing than the first let there be light in Genesis 1. For it is not nothing into which he makes this pronounces. It is worse than nothing. It's das nichtig. Barts, the nothing, if you're fans of uh, the never-ending story. Anybody read the never-ending story? It's das Niktig, it's the nothing. (laughs) It's sin, it's corruption, it's misery, it's brokenness into which God speaks light. The light of Jesus Christ. Why such a blessing of light and life to this sad world, to this sad state of das Niktig, the nothing? Israel was supposed to be light in life. Israel was supposed to mediate God's blessing to the nations, weren't they? Look at what they've become by this point. They're reduced to an insignificant collection of names. After Zerubbabel, you probably don't recognize any of them. You're probably like, I don't even recognize Zerubbabel. Well, Zerubbabel's a pretty important figure at the end of the Old Testament, but past him, none of the names are known. Israel has fallen into oblivion. Their light has all but faded. If they had been a great people once upon a time, that was once upon a time. When Frodo meets Aragorn in the prancing pony, it's his Lord of the Rings. If you haven't read Never Ending Story, surely you've read Lord of the Rings. Aragorn... Is in the Prancing Pony, Frodo meets him, but he's not much to look at, this Aragorn. You wouldn't know that he was Isildur's heir just by looking at him. The once noble people, the men of Numenor, had been scattered. The days of the great kings were long past. Israel was a paltry people. The great house of David had dwindled to a stump. In Joseph, heir of David, we meet not a prince, but a pauper. But this is exactly where God would have his people, is it not? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. But it's not just that they've been reduced to insignificance. It's also that even if you think about the great days of Israel the good old days <laughs> even her heroes were a mixed bag a mixture of light and darkness remarkable faithfulness and deeds of love and remarkable wickedness and unfaithfulness such is always the case with the best of men is greed for the ring plunged the whole land into a second darkness King Arthur's unwitting sin with Morgos, the once and future king. Come on, guys, help me out here. This is an epic. I'm appealing to epics. Even King Arthur's unwitting sin with Morgos and his terrible decision to try and destroy the child Mordred. The best of men have been deeply flawed. A mixture, success, failure, good, evil. And so it is with this ancient people of God, Matthew reminds us. There were great men, yes, but they too were a sore mixture. Judah put himself in the stead of Benjamin. Do you remember that story? Giving himself in self-sacrificial love so that his father would be spared heartache. And he also slept with his daughter-in-law. No, it gets better. He thought she was a prostitute. (laughs) Not great. Mm. David the king whose heart was perfect before God, except in that matter of adultery with the wife of Uriah, whom he subsequently had murdered. Matthew highlights those. Did you hear it? Judah had two sons by Tamar, the daughter-in-law. David had Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's not just that Israel had been reduced to a nothing people, but even in her best days... There was something sorely lacking. These are the best of the men of Abraham's offspring, Judah, David. The plain implication is someone greater than Judah would need to come. Someone greater than David would need to come. So we ask the question, why light and life to the world if the best of people on the earth was the people of God and the best of men within the people of God marred? With not mild iniquity. With heinous sin. The question is why light and life? Now the only answer is God's faithfulness. God's unrelenting faithfulness to the promise that he had made to Abraham. To the promise that he had made to David. In those two great covenants in Israel's history. Where God said, this is what I'm going to. To do so that my name will be praised. This is why Christ is sent forth to display the glories of a God who keeps his promise. So it continues to be with us, the church, now, me, you. We continue to be a mixed bag, don't we? Flesh contending with spirit, spirit contending with flesh. Our Lord is going to urge us on unto faithfulness and great acts of love through faith in his name. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could uproot this mountain. He presses that reality upon us. And Matthew contains some of the starkest calls unto Christian discipleship. And we must pray and labor to heed these calls earnestly by faith, but at the same time. Let us never forget for a moment that our hope and our stay, our comfort and our life is founded upon God's unwavering love and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the better Judah, the better David, whom God set forth to manifest his glory. But we can also hear in this reminder of God's faithfulness Not only comfort, but warning. If he keeps his word, then all that he has said is going to come to pass. If he's faithful to his promises, it also means he's faithful to his warnings, his threats. That's what we saw when Samaria was destroyed. Samaria was destroyed. Samaria was more powerful than Judah. Samaria shouldn't have been destroyed. They were wiped out in an instant, just like Micah said. Jerusalem was destroyed, just like Micah said. If there's consolation and comfort to be had from the truth of God's great faithfulness, then there's also warning and no small amount of fear and trembling. Because if he's faithful to his word of blessing, it means he's going to be faithful to his curses as well. Pronounced upon those who do not heed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people think that because God's word does not come to pass right now, God is not faithful. Look at this genealogy. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years passed. Clearly, he doesn't mark time like we mark time. (laughs) Clearly, he's not bound to time like we're bound to time. This manifests God's unwavering faithfulness to do the very thing he said he's going to do. Not one of his words will fall void. You can be confident of that. But God's faithfulness is also on display in the fact that He's given us a record, a book. For someone who loves books, I'm delighted. (laughs) That there should be a book, a faithful record of his wondrous deeds in the Lord Jesus Christ, preserved through the ages, passed down from one generation to the next, is yet another proof of God's great faithfulness. Matthew opens the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. We have a faithful record written, preserved of the life of Jesus Christ. How wonderful we don't even just have one record, one portrait. We have four portraits, four essential portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to the other testimony born throughout the New Testament. All witnessing to the same wonderful acts, the same wonderful person, the same wonderful promises, the same wonderful call to come unto this one and to receive that portion which he alone can give. There's an old legend about the origin of the Septuagint which you all forgot to bring this morning. That's the Greek Old Testament. Old Testament is written in Hebrew, that most angelic of tongues I know Hebrew a little bit better than Greek, so I think it's preferable. The Old Testament was translated, though, into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. And there's a legend surrounding the origins of the Septuagint. The legend goes that 72 learned Hebrews were tasked with translating from the Hebrew into the Greek and each one of these esteemed scholars entered into their private chambers to work on the translation and many months later they all emerged with their work complete and lo and behold it do that's behold in Greek lo and behold all 72 translations were identical wow it's probably made up <laughs> Each independent effort had yielded the exact same thing. You can hear the power that that story would convey about the legitimacy of this translation. And that much is true. When witnesses agree, it's powerful, isn't it? If you get four eyewitnesses who all take the stand and say, yeah, I I saw him. I, I saw him heal the blind. I saw him. Heal the deaf, the lame. I saw him raise the dead. I saw it. He was dead. Then he wasn't. I saw that. I heard him teach like no one has ever taught. I saw him feed thousands with a few pieces of bread and a few fish. I saw him walk on water. I thought it was a ghost. (laughs) It was the Lord. I saw him still the storm saw him nailed to a cross. I saw him put in a tomb. I saw him three days later alive. I saw him. That's what we have in the gospel accounts. This isn't myth. This isn't legend. These are eyewitness reports. I've spent my Fair time in the academy, even those great naysayers of the gospel are forced to say, yeah, this is some of the most impressive ancient history that we have. Nothing even comes close, really, to what we have in the gospels. God in his great faithfulness has preserved for us a recorded testimony of the wonders that unfolded in Jesus of Nazareth. God's faithfulness is not just on display in sending the Lord Jesus, but in preserving for us that faithful record such that you can take up and read. Take up and read. Look upon this one. This is what we saw and not just us. Hundreds beside. J.C. Ryle writes, Let us thank God daily for giving us the scriptures. Let us thank God daily for giving us the Scriptures. The poorest man who understands his Bible knows more about religion than the wisest philosophers of Greece and Rome. Such is indeed the case. For what is true religion, it's knowing God and following after Jesus Christ. And that's the real content of Matthew's Gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, The true king. So we can consider, second, the excellencies of Jesus in the three titles that Matthew supplies at the open. That's how he opens. The book of the Genesis of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I told Sunday school, Matthew loves threes. He loves threes. You heard that even in the structure of his whole history, right? Three sets of 14 structure the entire history from Abraham to Jesus. Matthew loves threes. He presents Jesus Christ along three titles here. Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Let's look at them each in turn. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Isaac is the son of Abraham, right? Everybody knows that. Matthew even says that. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. But Jesus is the true son of Abraham. Jesus fulfills Isaac. Matthew's theme of fulfillment is more than just a couple of statements about the future. Find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. No, no, It's much more. People foreshadow Jesus. And he's the fulfillment. What do I mean? Well... Isaac's birth was remarkable. Do you remember that? Children, do you remember how old Sarah was when she had a baby? Sarah was old. She was barren. It was an impossible womb for life. And yet, by virtue of God's promise, life. The birth of Jesus is more wonderful still. As we confess, conceived by the Holy Ghost. In the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaac's remarkable birth. The true child of promise. Isaac's near death was also remarkable. Do you remember this? Isaac was made to carry the wood of his death up to the top of a mountain. To be offered up as a sacrifice in obedience to God. But the angel stayed the hand. The death of Jesus would be more staggering still as he was nailed upon the wood that he carried a pure and willing sacrifice for sin. Not his, but yours and mine. His death is the fulfillment of what was almost Isaac's fate. Isaac was also the cause of a rift in the subsequent generation. For it was by Isaac that in the womb of Rebekah two children were born, Jacob. And Esau, one the father of Israel, the other an enemy of God. The Lord Jesus Christ would be an even more striking dividing line. Not just in the house of Israel, but in the, the whole world. As the gospel sets mother against daughter, father against son. But above all, God promised Abraham that in his offspring, all the nations would be blessed. Matthew hints at what's about to come in the inclusion of the Gentiles. I'm sure you heard the, the, the women that were included in the genealogy. They're not insignificant. It's not incidental. By virtue of these women, Matthew signals Matt. He and I are on a first name, basis. are very short. I have a brother named Matthew called Matt. There you go. <laughs> the early verses, Matthew signals the coming inclusion of the nations with Tamar. A Gentile. Rahab, a Gentile. Ruth, maybe the Gentile. <laughs> it's not physical descent that marks the true people of God. John the Baptist, don't presume to say we're offsprings of Abraham. God will raise up offspring out of these stones. It's not very commending to us that we're likened unto stones, but still, may his name be praised that he did it. <laughs> What constitutes the people of God is belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what constitutes the people of God. We speak regularly of the universal scope of God's blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So frequently that I think we lose something of its wonder. (laughs) Imagine a new human being. Imagine they can talk. And you've got to explain to this new human being the most basic and important facts of life. You say, okay, there's this stuff called food. There's there's this stuff called water. There's this stuff called air. There's this stuff called light. Everybody needs it. You're going to need it. You can't live without it. It's just one of those things. Without it, you'll die. (laughs) Wait, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. More important than any of those things, there's this person, Jesus of Nazareth. You're going to need him. Because without him, you're going to worse than die. I don't think it's incidental that Jesus appeals to these most basic and universal necessities to meaningfully communicate truth about himself. I'm the bread of life. I'm the true water. I am the life, the air that you breathe. I am the light of the world. It's an astonishing thing to claim about a person, isn't it? And Matthew says, it's him, and it's true. Follow him. The true son of Abraham is the one in whom God's choicest blessings of life are to be found for everyone. Jesus of Nazareth is the absolutely necessary one for every single man, woman, and child who ever lives. He's the hope of the nations. The blessing of Jew and Gentile alike. He's the true son of Abraham. Allow me to introduce him. But he's also the true king. With a kingdom like no other. That's what he means by the son of David. Now it's quite possible that David is actually the main significance behind these numbers. Are you ready to geek out with some gematria? No? (laughs) Gematria is the practice of translating words into numbers. Each letter of the Hebrew and the Greek alphabet corresponds to a number, so each word has a numerical value. Guess what word has the numerical value of 14? David. Dalet, 4. Vav, 6. Dalet, 4. David, 4, 6, carry the 1. Yeah, that's 14. <laughs> no, that was 9. 14! is the numerical value of David. So some see the significance of Matthew arranging the whole of history. 14, 14, 14. As basically saying, David, David, David. David is important. (laughs) And that makes sense. David is the 14th name here. And David is, as it says in verse 6, the king. Mm -hmm. There's no theme more important in Matthew than... Heaven's kingdom and heaven's king to be found in the true son of David. But once more, we're confronted when Solomon was the son of David, one greater than Solomon is here. We expect a more impressive kingdom in Jesus in scope, in longevity, and in substance. Kingdom, the kingdom under Solomon was the most impressive scope in Israel's history. It extended essentially from Egypt all the way to northern Mesopotamia. What's the scope of Christ's kingdom? Even demons listen to him. He forgives sin, all authority, in heaven and on earth. That's a remarkable scope. Solomon's kingdom lasted 40 years. And if you're a student of Solomon, not all of them were good. What's the duration of Christ's kingdom? He takes his seat upon an everlasting throne. Solomon's kingdom consisted in gold and riches, unlike Israel had ever seen. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ consists in heavenly treasure, where thieve and moth, I think it is, not moss, moth, (laughs) cannot even touch it. Jesus is the greater Solomon. He's the true son of David, which is related intimately to this final title. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God. In the Christ, you get the confluence of the faithfulness of God and the excellency of Jesus in one title. Because it's not a name. We say Jesus Christ and use Christ like a surname, like we say Randy Chrysler, Amanda Welliver, It's not a surname. They had patronymics. His name is Jesus Bar Joseph, title the Christ. It's much closer to Isildur's heir, the Pendragon. Those are titles, and they're remarkable ones at that. Jesus Bar Joseph is the Christ of God, the Messiah. Of God. He is the strange and the wonderful figure that the prophet saw from afar. David's son, yet David's lord. The shepherd king. Lowly but exalted. Servant but lord. Meek and mighty, mild, yet mighty to save. And that's a stunning point we ought not to miss from this genealogy. This is not an impressive list of names. Manasseh, even the best of men we heard, David, egregious sin. In many ways, this is an ugly list of names, encapsulating an ugly history marred by unfaithfulness and sin. It'd be like me introducing a speaker and saying, well, he comes from a long line of incest and adultery and murder and child sacrifice and rank Adultery, idolatry. And yet Jesus is not ashamed to be found among them. He's not ashamed to be called their brother. And this is the paradoxical excellence of this kingdom. His worth and his excellence are strangely and wonderfully on display in that he is a friend to the lowly and the sinner. He would take no small amount of grief for being associated with tax collectors and prostitutes, fishermen and lepers, sinners like you and me. He says, I'm gentle and lowly. You can come to me. But he also says, I bring forgiveness in life. I bring healing and cleansing. In fact, I'm the only one who can. His glory is on display not just in that he is meek and mild, but also that he is mighty to save. He is the Christ of God. And that's the point that Matthew will drive home again and again and again and again. You'll hear it echoed in the crowds. No one's ever done these things. No one's ever taught these things. There's no one who is like this man, Micah. Who is like Yahweh? And since there's no one like him, Matthew is going to say, labor to get an interest in him. He came to make disciples. He came to call not the righteous, but the unrighteous. Not the well, but the sick. And he makes disciples by giving his life for sinners and leading them and instructing them in the way of life. He alone forgives. He alone has the spirit without measure. He alone gives life. Matthew's going to make some incredibly challenging statements about the life of discipleship. The life of following Christ. And he does this not to discourage us. He does this so that we will make sure beyond any doubt that we see him for who he is. And that seeing him for who he is, we follow him wherever he calls us to go. For he alone possesses life let's be praying together as a church through our time in the gospel of matthew that god may grant us the eyes to see jesus clearly to hear his call plainly and by faith go wherever he calls us to go let's pray father sanctify us by your word press upon our hearts its riches Magnify your name even now, Lord, as we we taste of the riches of heaven that open up to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. This choice, portion, and gift which you have given to magnify your great name. We ask these things in Christ. Amen.